This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. They're civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts. I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 453 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Casey. Now, Casey is a good friend of mine, a fellow coach, and has also been a high-level operator in the law enforcement community for a couple of agencies. So we discuss a host of topics from her journey through law enforcement to achieving her childhood dream of becoming a canine officer, physical fitness organizational stress and harassment, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library, a free resource for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Casey. Enjoy. All right. Well, we are here in my home. Welcome back, Casey. Yes. We, I first, you want to say thank you so much for coming back. For people listening, we had a little faux pas, um, a technical issue I've never had before. Um, word of advice, anyone out there, if you have a mixer and you put it, your memory card in someone else's mixer, their mixer will completely wipe your memory card to make it work in their mixer. So... Lesson learned. I lost three uh, interviews, so this is the first one that we're doing again. But uh, hopefully we'll be able to kind of recreate exactly what we had the first time. So thank you, firstly, for coming back to the Behind the Show podcast. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so I like to start, as you know, chronologically, so we'll jump in that way. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. I was born up in Buffalo, New York basically Canada, um, but, you know, still America. 
Um, my father was in the Navy uh, when I was born. My mother was, I believe she had just finished um, like an associate's program in college. She originally was training to be an air traffic controller, um, took the test for that, and then ended up my dad got sick in the Navy. He was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And when he was diagnosed in the late 80s, early 90s, it was still really new and they didn't have a lot of research on it. So they ended up referring him down to the Central Florida area where the technology and um, the capabilities of just medicine were a little bit more advanced uh, in that particular field for his diagnosis. So they were kind of using him almost like a test subject. They weren't really sure how to combat the disease and how to work with it. So they sent him down to uh, Florida for that. Um, I have two older sisters. I'm the youngest of three. One sister is five years older than me. One sister is three years older than me. So we transplanted down here at a pretty young age and then uh, just kind of grew up from there. Beautiful. Now with Crohn's disease, that's something that we hear talked about a lot. And now in hindsight, and obviously you coach the same gym that I do, um, we look at some of our farming, food, you know, nutrition practices, health. Um, and I think there's a lot of discussion now about gut flora and, you know, some of the, the chemicals that are put on food that was rife in the 80s. Has What was his journey? Did he ever find that there were holistic elements of the, the, that benefited him or did he have to rely on the, the medicine? <laughs> so, um, unfortunately, he mostly relied on the medicine. Um, I know later on, um, probably in like the 2000s, um, he ended up going uh, to have the surgery to go ahead and have the colostomy put in. Um, unfortunately, whenever he was first diagnosed, their solution to the problem was any of the intestines uh, that had any kind of lesions on them, um, they would just remove them. So they ended up cutting out significant amounts. I mean, he had tons and tons of surgeries. Um, and it really kind of, I think, I think the disease for my dad was most harmful um, psychologically. So he, he really had a hard time with that because there was a lot of stuff that he just couldn't do. Um, and, you know, even like trips, family trips to like Disney and stuff like that. Like, you know, it was constantly, he was having to, you know, rush to the bathroom. He wasn't feeling well. Um, so I think it really took a toll on him mentally more than physically. I mean, definitely physically. So if you see, it's hard to explain because physically it really, really, really took a toll on him. But I think even more so mentally, um, because of how much it affected him physically. And it wasn't until later, that I remember from the disease that they were like, hey, maybe change your diet, you know, not so much like the red meats and stuff like that. Um, and that was I, I don't remember hearing him ever talk about anything like that with a diet until after he had the colostomy. So I was like, you know, middle school age, something like that. Um, and uh, and so, I mean, I've definitely tried to make the adjustment, you know, eating, eating healthy, exercising, staying active and stuff like that. Um, just because I know the history, um, I wish that he would have, because eventually his disease, um, turned into or contributed to, uh, the form of cancer that ended up being fatal for him. So I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. That's, I mean, hindsight's 2020, but you know, when you see, you know, you hear of, um, Oh God, what's the other one I'm forgetting now. It's another GI tract 
irritation. Um, but you, and then we look at what we eat and even, even the immunity, like what we've went through the last year. Now people are understanding that the immune system is 80% your gut, right. you know? So and now we'll talk about cancer too. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's just always interesting to hear, especially from, from an older generation. Sometimes what they used to do was actually right. Yeah. And then what we started doing was, was wrong, but I'm sorry to hear that ended yeah. up, you know, taking his life. Um, what about, uh, sports you ended up obviously not only coaching but being a pretty phenomenal tactical athlete so what did you do when you were a kid um so we were lucky when we were little um to when we did move down to florida um at first we were in a little neighborhood and then we branched out um we kind of lived on like a little uh, i guess what you would think of like a small farm it was really really um rural and we lived down a dirt road and we had three acres. We had horses. Um, we had neighbors, like kids who were close to our age in the area. So we were, you know, backyard football. That was always fun. I think I actually convinced my parents to sign me up for Pop Warner football when I was um, fifth or sixth grade, I think. My my dad was terrified because I was the only girl, of course. But I wanted to do it. Full contact pads, everything. So I got to do that. Um, started playing uh, Little League softball. My mom was a softball player when she was growing up. So she signed us all up for that. Um, my sisters and I, so we did that, um, took that up through high school. I did softball in high school and, um, really just like, I mean, I was always really active kid. We were, we were the type that literally we'd take our bikes out all day and be home at nighttime by dinner. (laughs) So, um, I think uh, I didn't really get into like weightlifting aspects and stuff like that, actually like gym type stuff until after I graduated high school and um, I ended up going to college for um, about a year and a half down in the Orlando area. And then when I came back home after that um, is when I was kind of introduced to powerlifting. At first I was in a local gym and one of the trainers came up to me and saw me and was like hey like you're kind of built like a weightlifter have you ever done any weightlifting and I was like no so he actually started working with me I did um my first com competition was like a push pull so a deadlift and a bench press and then uh from there I just kind of fell in love with it I was like hey I'm not too bad at this pretty good and then you know learned how to have fun with it so Mm -hmm. well i know in the previous conversation you talked about um coming out kind of in the department that you're working for and i want to get to that but i didn't ask you before at what point did you realize that you were gay and then was in in central florida at that time how was the environment for you know a young gay woman to be able to come out whether it was her parents whether it was her environment so it's funny because i think about it now and if you ask me now and I look back and like, when did you know you were gay? I probably could have been like, I don't know, definitely high school. But I, you know, I didn't know then it looking then I was just trying to be like everybody else and kind of fit in with the swing of everybody else. Um, You know, I didn't really date much in high school. I think like maybe I mean, I don't even think I really had like an official boyfriend, maybe like there was a couple guys that like I kind of liked and, you know, hung out with and stuff like that. But as far as like any kind of actual like romantic relationship with men in high school, I didn't, I didn't have any. Um, and I, uh, after high school, I dated a guy for a little while. Um, and then after that, um, is whenever I met what would have been my first girlfriend and, uh, I worked with her 
and uh, just kind of spent time with her. And it was actually kind of funny because she kind of like pushed me into it almost was like hey like this is what's happening and at the time like she hadn't you know been with a woman before either so um luckily for me um coming out to my family was a lot easier and more comfortable than um I guess like society at the time because even then I mean it was like early 2000s it wasn't you know I'm, I'm certain it wasn't as difficult as you know later dates and you know I didn't have to hide hide but it was still kind of awkward like you know I, I didn't feel comfortable um like being in public and you know like holding hands and walking around you know just kind of like PDA and nothing over the top I'm not a huge PDA person anyway but you know when you're with your person and you're out in public or you want to go for a walk or something you know you don't touch them or hold your hand or you know what I'm saying so um that was a little bit uh different than it is now for sure but essentially coming out to my family um I, I told my mom first and I basically was like hey um you know I think you know I, I think that you know I want to be with the girl I think I think I'm gay and my mom's like yeah we, we all knew that like <laughs> you hear that a lot <laughs> don't you <laughs> yeah, basically like my whole family was like yeah, everybody knew that already. Cool. Anyway, and just kind of like moved on from it. So it was really, it was really easy. I mean, even my extended family and everything like that, like never, you know, there was never any kind of issue or backlash, um, which is a, a huge blessing for me because I'm, you know, I've dated people who have struggled with that, you know, and then, and then that becomes a burden on the relationship and stuff like that too. So, but I mean, strides have been made progressively forward and, um, I mean, I think, yeah, work, like, like you said, we talked about the last time with work, it was, uh, I didn't, you know, like the first whole year I was, I mean, I'm sure people knew, but you know, it's not like, it wasn't something that I like tried really hard to hide, but it wasn't how I introduced myself. You know what I mean? I wasn't like, it wasn't the first thing that I thought people should know about me because if you think about it, you know, your sexuality, if you're straight, you don't have to walk up to somebody and be like, Hey, my name's James. I'm straight. You know what I mean? Um, so it is what it is. It was never something in my head that I felt like I needed to like wear as a badge of honor or put out there to make it known to everybody. It was just like the people that I really care about and who really care about me, it shouldn't make a difference either way. So that's kind of how I judged it. I mean, if somebody asked, I wouldn't lie, but it wasn't, you know, right up front. That's how, you know, how I introduce myself to people. So, yeah, no. And I think it's just, it's so good to see now. Cause I mean, again, it's, it's irrelevant, you know, it really right. is the same as religion, yep. you know, I mean, as long as you're not a dick, you should, <laughs> exactly. really, you know, you should worship whatever, or, you know, believe in whatever you believe in. If it makes you a good person, kudos to you. But what I, reason I asked that is because I, I find it very encouraging. Now, Ty has like numerous friends that are like middle school, early high school that have already transitioned, mm -hmm. you know, now, even though, you know, of course, the path of, path of least resistance is whether you're gay, straight, that you're comfortable in, you right. know, the, the body that you're not. But I can't imagine that growing up not being comfortable in that yeah. body. So the fact that that's accepted now, the fact that someone can, you know, that feels like they were a boy the whole time can change their name and, you know, identify with a different gender. And again, there's this whole, you know, extreme conversation, even with that, like, Oh, I want, what are you going to identify as a chair? No, just as we know, there's a lot of people that, you know, were born and either love the same sex or, you know, feel like they should be the opposite sex, whatever it is. But the fact that the, so many of his friends are now the fact that, he talks about, you know, some of his friends who are gay at middle school age. I just think that's that's awesome because 
I'm assuming that was always the case, but up until right. recently, that was always suppressed, hidden, even to the point oh, yeah. maybe some people struggling with it and taking their own lives, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more because I know, you know, when I was in middle school, if you were gay, that was like, I mean, that was like an insult. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if you were, you definitely didn't want anybody to know, but if you knew or if somebody called you that, it was like, you know, it's like calling you a, a bad name in the book. So, I mean, you know. I, I definitely think that the world in that aspect um, of acceptance and, and coming through, I mean, especially for young people, because that's a really, it's a tough time for anybody, you know, no matter what your sexuality is, whatever. Um, so just a lot of expectations for from young people now. And so to be able to, for that, to not be something that they have to worry about at that age. I yeah. think. You know what I mean? Like that's just, they, they they shouldn't have to, you know what I mean? Like they shouldn't have to worry about that. Like who cares? It doesn't, it's really irrelevant. And I think, I think one of the biggest things is us teaching our kids who don't have to deal with that, who don't have to struggle with that, with sexuality, um, who, you know, identify as straight or whatever gender they want to identify as um, to teach them that, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? If someone else does, like, who cares? Like, we, we have to be good examples as adults to be like, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it literally doesn't matter. It really it does not. Like, how does this affect you? Dating. It doesn't. Okay, mm. let it go. So, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Beautiful. Well, at that school age as well, tell me about your career aspirations. What were you What were you dreaming of doing one day? Always and forever. I mean, since four or five years old, I wanted to be a canine handler. Uh, police officer with a police dog. So um, I stuck with that. I never changed that. Um, just was blessed with having that intuition and, you know, having those goals and that realization at such a young age that I was able to follow it and, you know, stick with it. So I, uh, I literally saw an episode of Cops that my dad was watching one night <laughs> in like, really early nineties and saw the officers with the, uh, with a big, huge German shepherd. And I was like, wow, they get to bring their dog to work. And, uh, my dad's like, yeah. And I mean, at that time I didn't know what the dogs did. I just thought it was cool that they got to bring their dog to work with them. So I was like, I want to do that. And then, you know, kind of stuck with it and studied it as I grew up, had a little bit more exposure and stuff like that to it. So, um, yeah. Did you have dogs growing up? Did, yes. We always had dogs growing up. My mom was actually a dog groomer when we moved down to Florida. That's kind of the um, career path that she took. So we were around dogs all the time, had dogs growing up, um, mostly rescues and stuff like that. I mean, when we lived out on the <clears throat> big three acres, we'd have like random dogs show up here and there and then they'd be like, all right, well, I guess they're ours now. So, <laughs> I mean, that's really how we got most of our dogs. So, yeah. Um, and my mom... One of the places that she groomed for a really long time, um, the local sheriff's office actually had a contract with that uh, office um, and it was like a veterinarian place too. So they used to bring all their patrol dogs in there and sometimes they would come in and they would use the facility to like bathe their dogs. And so I thought that was so cool. Like the days that I'd be at work with my mom and one of the deputies would come in with his work dog and be giving him a bath and that did nothing but just add fuel to the fire for me. So beautiful yeah so your mom went from air traffic control to dog grooming (laughs) hair traffic control yeah there you go (laughs) (laughs) so tell me then about what that looked like as far as graduating high school and the path you took to your first uh, department 
so I was kind of uh, a little shithead in high school. Um, I uh, I got my fair share of trouble. Luckily, nothing like too major to where I got a criminal record or anything like that. But um, <clears throat> I was uh, I was always kind of the class clown in high school. Um, I did, you know, we did a big senior prank, me and a friend of mine. We did a couple of them, actually. But I don't know what the statute of limitations is on it, so I can't speak <laughs> about it. <laughs> um, so, you know, I... Uh, I kind of goofed off a little bit, um, a lot of bit in high school. And looking back now, I kind of wish I would have taken it more seriously. Um, but I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to go to the police academy as soon as I turned 19. Um, initially, I actually thought about joining the military, wanted to do the Marine Corps. Um, but when I was like a junior, I started having some kind of like mild asthma issues. And then I was kind of told like, hey, the you know if you have like an asthma you know they would it's like some medical thing or something like that and also when I graduated I was still only 17 I hadn't turned 18 yet so um a friend of mine like one of my really good friends in high school was going down to school in Orlando and she's like well why don't you just you know start taking some college classes and come down there with me and then we moved in together and I did that and then ended up coming back um I did probably about a year of college toward my associate's degree in criminal justice and then ended up starting the police academy um locally finished that and applied the first agency that i applied to and finished my full like packet uh is the agency that i started with and that was in 2009 um and then kind of worked up from there so i've been doing it ever since <laughs> so i think we talked about this last time and i'll make sure we revisit it again so in this area, we've got a we've got a good academy here, the same way as we've got a great fire academy. Um, what did your defensive tactics and weapons training look like at the front door? So prior to going into the academy, um, we always had guns in the family. Um, for a little while, actually, after my parents got divorced, my mom uh, dated a guy who was a police officer for a short amount of time. Um and so I was exposed to, you know, handguns and um, shotguns, uh, just basic gun safety stuff, you know, shooting cans in the backyard and things like that. So I got to do that um, as far as defensive tactics prior to the academy. It was, you know, your regular old neighborhood fight. And uh seemed like I was always fighting with the boys in the neighborhood, though, because my sisters were bigger than me and there was pretty tough. So if any girls ever mess with me, my sisters would usually uh, <laughs> handle that. But uh, um, going into the academy, um, the shooting standard was really basic. Um, they did handgun and shotgun qualifications at the time that I went through. And uh, defensive tactics, I really actually fell, I'll say fall in love with the, you know, the concept of defensive tactics when I went to the academy um, and just learning the techniques and stuff like that. It's again, really basic stuff. Um, they just revamped the program in Florida um, to add a little bit more of uh, MMA type movements. And so they're progressing toward that, which is excellent um, because the majority of the things that you're doing, I mean, even you go through the techniques and defensive tactics and you get out on the street and, it doesn't look like that. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? So they're really minimal. Um, it's definitely like a, a building block, but I enjoyed that so much that I was actually kind of offered 
while I was still in the academy, like, hey, once you get on the road and you're working for a couple of years, um, you should go to the instructor school and then, you know, come back and, and teach at the academy. So I did that as well and um, still certified instructor for defensive tactics. So Very nice. Yeah, I think that's one thing that a lot of us don't really think about, even if you're in martial arts. Like if I'm, you know, tussling with someone on the street as a as a citizen then my goal is to get away from him choke him out whatever it is but when you think that the goal is to cuff that person (laughs) i mean that just changes things completely because you know yeah i can you know mount get someone's back and you know get the rear naked choke and they'll go to sleep and great but i can't do that as a police officer right so to think i have to control each of those hands on someone that might be psychotic might be on some sort of you know pcp might be just a shitload bigger and stronger than me um in a in in a profession where usually you guys ride one to a car yep i mean when when you take a step back most people would be like how the hell do you even do that <laughs> you use your words <laughs> you learn to become a wordsmith i think honestly that is uh defensive tactics taught me like the best thing i could have ever learned from that was how to not use them, you know, and because, you know, I mean, once you actually get out on the street and you try for the first time, you you go hands on with someone and you try to, you know, subdue them and, and get them to because that's what they're trying. They're trying to get away. And, um, you know, anything that's trying to get away with, from you, like you're not standing up throwing blows back and forth. It's not a boxing match. It's a wrestling match for, for like a basically like a, a greased pig that's trying to get away from you so they're slippery <laughs> they're covered in god knows what and you know you're trying to detain them so knowing you know having that first or you know one or two experiences where you're like well shit that didn't work um and then learning how to when you are by yourself and you know somebody's coming but you're not exactly sure how far away they are to kind of prolong that like you can read people you can read their body language you know when it's going to be a struggle or not and so you start having to use your brain and having to use that communication tool to you know affect the arrest and hopefully convince them not to fight with you um and then you know or prolong it until people can get there to help you if somebody is there's a lot of people out there who are bigger than me you know what i mean so (laughs) but i think um i think a huge part of defensive tactics and, you know, I preach this to my trainees all the time, too, is how you carry yourself and how you show up on scene. Because if someone doesn't take you seriously and they look at you and they're like, oh, I can, you know, I can fight this guy or I can definitely get away from them. Um, or they even get the slightest inkling that you will allow them to, you know, get the get the jump on you. They're going to do it. So walking up um, and just having that presence, if you will, and that persona that. Hey, like, we're cool. I'm going to respect you. But if you try anything, it's not going to end well. Like, I'm, if we have to fight, I'm willing to fight. And a lot of times just having that, you know, just portraying that to somebody de-escalates. Yeah. Well, that seems to be a, a common denominator with a lot of the law enforcement people I had on. And, and obviously they're on the show because they're good at their job and they're in good physical shape. And, you know, most of them are, you know, jujitsu high belts as well. But that's what I hear over and over again. When you have the tools to be able to take care of yourself, more often than not, you don't need to use them because you walk on scene and someone looks at this person. It's like, okay, well, they got cauliflower ears, they're <laughs> you know, veins in their arms. Yep. I'm guessing this person isn't a pussy. Right. I'm just going to do what they say. Yep. Versus, and you know, I, I'm always very 
careful with this subject because our profession absolutely sets us up for failure physically. There's no question the way that we work our people, but you get that officer that's deconditioned or that tiny, you know, male or female police officer that maybe hasn't put in the strength and conditioning work. Um, you're more likely to pull a weapon because you haven't got those go-to and you're not so much of a deterrent. So, you know, have I had a, a Green Beret, the head of Go Ruck, Jason McCarthy, on the show the other day, and he talked about being so well-trained that you're trained when not to shoot. And yeah. I think that's a huge thing. You know, that's, that needs to be our focus, that we have to go back to looking whether it's police, fire, EMS is the same. You shouldn't be fat as a medic. You know, you might be dragging a bunch of kids out of a school during a shooting. Um, you know, that we have to be able to, to walk the walk in, in your profession to be able to de-escalate and, you know, not invite, like you said, an opportunity to escape. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's, there's officers out there who I've seen who they have, they kind of, they take the, the meter a little further than it should go and instead of kind of being that neutral, like, hey, like, I don't want to fight, we're cool, but if I need to turn it up, I can. And instead they show up and they're already up there. And that escalates people too. They see somebody and they're like, immediately. I mean, there's so many times where I can recall somebody just walking on scene and I will, I'm not ashamed to admit, I've been the person and not because, you know, I feel like I'm over the top, but because of the way I carry myself and I don't know when I show up, somebody's asking for backup, I show up, I think something's wrong. So I'm already heightened a little bit. And then somebody sees me and they lose their mind. They're like, oh, what this, you know, why are you looking at me like that? Why are you coming up here? All to, like, and I'm like, hold on a second. Like, I haven't said anything to you. You know what I mean? But there are some instances where you'll literally look at another officer and be like, hey, you got to go because they're making things worse. Mm -hmm. And to have the ability again to see when that's happening and remove yourself. I mean, I've had to do it. I'm like, OK, my presence is not helping the situation. So I'm going to just step back. Step back and be quiet. I'll stand in the shadows. I'm not going to look at anybody. I'm not going to talk. I'm going to be watching and be aware. But I mean, it happens. And, and you know, you never know what somebody else's, what someone's prior experience with law enforcement was. And I always keep that in the back of my head. So, you know, if I get out with somebody and immediately they're, you know, verbally combative or, you know, saying nasty stuff or just acting a certain way, I kind of have to think like, well, that's probably not something I did. It's not something I did to them. It's something someone else did. And now... I have to come and clean up their mess and try to make a new perspective for this person when I make contact with them so that hopefully next time they have contact with law enforcement, they don't act that way and get the wrong cop who is scared, who doesn't have the tools or doesn't know what tool to use and just goes right for, you know, the firearm because they get caught off guard and they're, they're scared. I mean, so you got to try to, every time I have contact with somebody, I think of that. I'm like, let me, and I've said it to people, give me a chance to change your mind. Give me a chance to change your mind about cops because we're not all the same. And trust me, there are some shitty ones out there. I've worked with them. Mm -hmm. And I know if that person came to my house when, you know, God forbid somebody in my family was hurt um, and they showed up, I would be like, no, send me someone else. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's, that's a huge responsibility that we have as well that I think that it's hard to teach that. It's hard to teach that. It's not part of the curriculum in the academy. Um, so you got to try to make it part of the curriculum on the road when you're training somebody and show them like, Hey, look, you might, you might have one chance. You know, the average citizen doesn't have contact with law enforcement every day. Like we have contact with the average citizen every day. So use that opportunity if you can to set the example and kind of train them, I guess, 
how to interact with us and how to keep things going in the right direction and keep things de-escalated and not have to turn it into a flight and not have to, you know, get a complaint or something of the sort. Yeah. Well, I think an important point that you just brought up a minute ago, which I can think of in my career, is sometimes you get there and you're just not gelling with that person right off the bat. Yep. And it's not as critical with me because as a medic, you know, <laughs> I'm not there to arrest someone. I'm not there, you know, to, to act immediately. But I've had I remember one call specifically, we had this guy, it was a GI bleed, and this poor guy was in a trailer and, you know, bleeding profusely from a hole he shouldn't be bleeding profusely from, and no one else could convince him to go to the hospital. And I don't know what it was about me, like I came on a rescue and the whole engine crew had been talking to him, and I forget how I phrased it now, but he ended up coming with us. So at that point, I was the right person for that one. Yep. I've been to other ones, you know. <laughs> I mean, I hate to just blow everyone's mind, but people are racist towards white people too, where because I'm a white medic, you know, I just remember this one Hispanic girl, my fellow, my partner who's Hispanic was actually being a dick to this woman and she was so, totally friendly with him. Yeah. I'm being all kind of compassionate and she's calling me all this kind of, you know hateful speech yep. and so i'm like all right you take care of them. i'm yeah. fucking done you know so sometimes i think it's also important to know when it's time to just tag off or yep. you know you have someone who maybe has been sexually abused maybe the big burly male cop yep. isn't the one to go to however conversely he might be he might be the sweetest person on yeah. your crew so understanding sometimes you need to just delegate to someone else because you're as you said making the situation worse not better even if you're not doing anything wrong yeah, and I always have to laugh about that, too, because a lot of times we do get that where, you know, women feel uncomfortable talking to male officers and, you know, you don't know what their past experiences were. And I always laugh whenever they tap me in because, you know, I'm a little rough around the edges. <laughs> I'm not as feminine as they come. So it's kind of funny to me where I have to, you know, change my hat and be somebody different and just be what that person needs in that moment and see if I can make it work. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. So. Yeah. I think another thing that I've found just in life in general, I was very lucky growing up on a farm where we had all walks of life walk through the, the farmhouse door, yep. you know, and it was incredible because you learned to talk to people on different levels. And those levels aren't up and down, they're, they're lateral, yep. you know, but if you grow up, you know, as, uh, you know, in an area that, that you grew up on the streets, then you're going to talk to them one way. If it's someone who, you know, is, born with a silver spoon in their mouth and i don't mean that in a derogatory way but you know all they've known is affluence and you're going to talk to them a different yep. way you know but you're still communicate communicate in the same way you know and if someone doesn't speak your language then you're going to use more body language rather than the actual <laughs> words so yeah, yeah it's uh i think you're absolutely right that 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 um interaction portion is so so critical not just for de-escalation but i'm sure for you getting the trust for someone to actually tell you what was going on oh, yeah. as well absolutely yeah i mean that's it, it is it's really about you know, communicating with people, like I try to explain it, um, we're so trained from the academy up to just be so robotic and that doesn't get anywhere with anyone like that never works. You know what I mean? So you have to learn how to really humanize yourself because, again, that person's past experience was the robot cop and it did not go well. So talk to him like a person nowadays, like when I was new and people would be like, what's your name? I'm, you know. I'm officer so-and-so, you know what I mean? But now it's like, I'm Casey, you know what I mean? I, I'm here to, I'm here to talk to you. I'm You called for help. Let me help you. Here's me as a person trying to see what I can do for you to help. And I mean, that, that goes such a long way. You think about like the, if your cable goes out and you call 
Nobody wants to talk to the automated system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're always pressing zero to talk to a person, right? And so I think that that's the same in, you know, the first responders as well. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting. Um, well, you mentioned about being, um, you know, Robocop and not, not ending well, and it didn't for him. I think he died in the end. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, by the call. Um, but that's one thing I see is a lot of the issues that we see out there are related to the prohibition of drugs. And so we have the gangs, we have the prostitution, we have, you know, obviously the drug smuggling, the selling, the all that stuff. Um, and what I see through a medic's lens is you've got a lot of people that are hurting, you know, as opposed to a community riddle with with devious criminals, you know. And there, of course, there are some horrible, horrible people that mastermind some of these things that absolutely should be locked away. And there are people that sex traffic that should be locked away and people that harm children that should be locked away. But a lot of the men and women that I see that take up a bulk of the calls are people that, again, there's a kind of ripple effect of mental ill health. So without loading the question, um, I always like to ask anyone that comes on here that's from you know law enforcement background, how much of the the calls that you respond to that you've seen do you think would not be there if we actually took addiction and we made it a medical issue rather than a criminal issue? <laughs> oh, I would say at least 80%, at least. Um, it, in some way, shape, or form, you can do a little bit of webbing and connect a majority of the calls for service that we're going to um, to drugs or some kind of um, mental health crisis related thing. And it's funny, I actually talked, um, there was a lady who came to our department not too long ago uh, doing a research study on just how to kind of get a better understanding of the process for mental health crisis calls as it, you know, comes to law enforcement and, um, and, you know, after the fact, and she was asking, you know, how many calls we go to. And I'm like, I think all of our officers, like each individual officer. So let's say there's 12 on shift one night, each individual officer is going to at least one mental health related call per shift, which is, it's it it should be something that we're addressing in a different way um and i'll be the first one to tell you as a police officer i am not qualified to handle those types of situations and my input into it my solution to the problem if you will or you know a piece of the puzzle is i really do believe that you know this whole idea that oh you know we should have social workers who come in and deal with this we should Um, and I look at it as an aspect for the way that we kind of handle, um, child abuse or elderly abuse, right? As a police officer, if we get a call where we think that it might be involving some type of child abuse or elderly abuse, there is a hotline number we can call. Now, if it's an emergency situation where they might need to come do some kind of removal, um, especially if we have charges and there's going to be, you know, some kind of removal of the victim, um, we can call the on-call person to come out, but if we see something that we're like, yeah, this probably isn't right, we can call. We can make a report via phone with the agency and, you know, tell them what's going on, give them the basis, give them everybody's information, and then they follow up within like two or three days. So why not work mental health like that? 
Why not? You know, because not every time that I make contact with somebody who's having some kind of mental health crisis or some kind of, you know, mental health related or drug related problem. For us, the, you know, Baker Act, if you will, which is taking somebody and, you know, taking them to a facility to be uh, evaluated for the three days. Like to me, it's kind of like a lazy fix to the problem. It's like, and unfortunately, that's that's the tool that they give us. And when we're understaffed and overworked and there's a bunch of calls impending um, and, you know, you're not getting through with the person. Oh, OK, well, you know, that's I, I guess, you know, we're just going to have to Baker Act them. So, number one, we're not going to be liable if they hurt themselves or hurt somebody else. Um, and number two, it clears the call off the screen so we can go to the next one. Um, and in the interview with the lady who was coming in and asking us questions, you know, I told her, I'm like, we don't know what happens after we drop the person off of the facility. I have no idea. And I think that working it in a way where it's a resource, where there is, you know, some kind of agency <clears throat> of professionals who actually are trained and that's what they do. That's what they specialize in. Um, Cause we, we specialize in public safety, right? So technically if you're not a threat to the public safety, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be dealing with it. It's not, that's not our specialty. We do all the time, but that's not what we specialize in. That's not our sole purpose. That's not our function. So to me, having some kind of resource where I can pick up the phone and say, Hey, this is what I see. This is how this person's responding. I don't think that they're, you know, an immediate threat to themselves or anybody else, but I do think that they could benefit from some assistance and then have somebody else come and follow up with them. Somebody who's not in a uniform, somebody who's not a cop, somebody who's not the face of last time I was having a crisis, they basically imprisoned me, <laughs> you know, took me against my will in handcuffs in a police car, delivered me to this facility, which by the way, I know you've seen a facility here. Yeah. Um, but most of the facilities where you're dumping these people off and going, they look exactly like the jail. You know what I'm saying? And what kind of message are we sending to somebody who is in crisis to now it is, it's like a punishment. It's a punishment that you, you got to this point, which is already punishment enough. <laughs> and now we're essentially arresting you. You're not, you're not being criminally charged with anything, but we're taking away your civil liberties for a however long period of time to send you to a place that looks and feels like you are in trouble and you are in jail. Um, I've had people who would rather go to jail than go to the mental health facilities that are available. And to me, like, that's not acceptable. Because if, like right now, if I were in mental health crisis and I knew that I was going to be placed under a Baker Act and taken to one of these facilities, oh, I'd kick and scream and fight as well because I don't want to go there. That, that looks like jail to me. And in my head, when you're already at that point, that breaking point that led you to have to have this contact with the police... That's not a solution to your problem. So I think more follow up. I think more consistent because like with the uh, with the DCF stuff, like they do a full investigation, right? They they talk to the children. They talk to the family members. They talk to any witnesses. They talk to teachers. They, you know what I'm saying? Why can't we offer that same service for people in crisis? What? Why is that so crazy? Like I, I don't. I don't know why we haven't put that together, but to me, um, and I, I definitely think it would cut down on, it would cut down on a lot because if I do have to go hands on with somebody who's like that, I mean, 
now I'm fighting them because they're in mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. And now they might get criminal charges because of how they're responding to that. I mean, think of how you could change the whole, somebody's entire outlook so that they wouldn't be afraid to call and ask for help because it's not going to end in them, you know, getting tossed in the back of a police car and taken to a facility that looks and feels like jail or taking your shoelaces and all this, all this stuff. Um, we do have a facility up where I work now that is a lot more welcoming. Um, it looks more like a doctor's office than it does a jail facility. Um, but we just, we need more places like that. We need more, more than just a quick fix. Like, Hey, we're throwing you in the, in this box for 72 hours until a doctor says, no, you're okay. I'll let you go. Mm-hmm. Doesn't you're magically make sense. fine. Now. Yeah. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. I actually just had a very encouraging conversation with the new superintendent of our school system here for, obviously, you know, the story of people listening, if, if, uh, you followed it, um, my son was Baker Act from a school completely, you know, mistakenly didn't even fit any of the criteria um as a huge fan of law enforcement it really soured my opinion of our agency and then it happened with the city agency so, like we had this like trifecta and it was just blame storming when i went to the route last time the so said oh it's the school's fault and the school said oh it's the sheriff's office fault and i would say i'm just fucking disgusted i'm are you serious but what was even worse is when he was there, I think about, I keep forgetting exact numbers, but at least four, four or five other children from that same middle school cycled through. Yeah. Now, being positive, this meeting was amazing. This new superintendent and the deputy sounded really, really, yeah, the, the board already been rolling a little bit. I don't know if it was from the ripple effect of, you know, the, the stuff that I did last time. And I hope so, along with other people, I'm sure. But... And this is another thing. What you just described, now imagine a 12-year-old child going through that. Yeah. A 12-year-old child that, you know, let's take for an example, a depressed 12-year-old child. Do you think that kid's ever going to be honest about how they're feeling? No. no. The next thing you're going to find them hanging in their closet yeah. because you just took away their ability to speak. Because right. last time they were honest, you stuck them in a fucking room for three days and you you told their, took their shoelaces. Mm-hmm. And you let them, you know, wouldn't even let them see their parents. So... I couldn't agree more. I mean, it was heartbreaking as a parent. Um, you know, I've had so many people from the, like the psychology background that have said Baker Act's actually been proven not to work, that kind of isolation. Um, and then that's just, you know, that's the actual mental health crisis ones. We'll then now look into the addiction side. Those are all mental health crisis people too. So my whole philosophy is, as Portugal's done, and I know I talk about this all the time as a reason why I talk about this all the time. If we took the money that we have for this quote-unquote war on drugs that is the worst, you know, failure of a war ever, and we put it proactively in the facilities that you're talking about, having, you know, people that can respond, having addiction centers and um, therapy, you know, centers and job creation and all these proactive uh, opportunities to make people into high-functioning members of society again, Imagine the resources we could have. Imagine we could put police officers back too to a car. You know, we wouldn't have to wear riot gear every time you're walking around because everyone around you is a gangbanger. And you know what I mean? Right. You've take, you've cut the head off the snake. Now the shitbags have no power, <laughs> you know? So it, it's such a win-win, but it's, it's a hard sell because we've been conditioned to believe that addiction is bad and drugs are bad, you know, when actually 
everyone's hurting. And people lean on lots of things, but they happen to be legal. Drugs happen to be illegal, so we lock all those people up for being, you know, tormented mentally. It's a, it's a terrible, it's, a, it's not a solution. It's not a solution. No. Well, um, on your career path, one thing we haven't talked about, in your first agency, tell me um, your journey to getting a canine and what that was like for that four-year-old Casey that finally <laughs> realized a dream. Uh, so initially, actually, um, when I started out there, um, there was, uh, I learned very quickly that canine spots don't come open very often. And that's because when you get the spot, you are making, uh, almost decade commitment to that position. Um, so you're getting a young dog and you're expected to work him through his work expectancy, you know, seven to 10 sometimes depending on the dog and you know his health and everything like that so there weren't spots available um but i knew you know had it in the back of my mind so i went uh, a couple other routes i did um another little proactive unit um which was our um bicycle patrol team um and basically we did like street crime type of stuff um but it was really cool because we ride around at night and just sneak up on people and you know, we're riding in the dark. They can't see us and we'll roll up and we got all kinds of stuff. So that was, um, um, fun in learning, you know, the proactive approach to policing and stuff like that. Um, and then I went, I did, uh, tried out for SWAT and I got on the SWAT team there and, uh, I was the first woman in the entire county to be on the SWAT team. So that was a pretty, pretty good accomplishment. I was pretty proud of that. Um, and then ended up, um, probably about five years in, uh, canine spot came open. So put in for that. Um, and, uh, ended up going through the tryout and everything and being selected. So it was as, as looking back, um, obviously it was a very, very happy, uh, moment. Um, and emotionally, um, I told the, the story last time of, uh, that year, it was, uh, 2014, um, the, uh, the beginning of the years whenever I lost my dad to cancer and, um, I was actually appointed the canine position on his, what would have been his birthday that year. So, um, super emotional for me, uh, to have that. And especially on, on that day, just the kind of significance of it kind of set it in there like hey this is this is meant to be this is supposed to happen so absolutely so walk me through then that process you're you're you know how how are they finding these dogs at what level of training does it have what age is it when when it's given to you so um essentially what happens is most agencies are selecting a handler first which is a huge it's a big part because again you're a team so it's half and half. So you're going to expect so much from this animal, from this dog, but you're also having to expect even more than that from the handler, the person who's utilizing this tool. So, um, as far as the physical tryout for people, it was, um, two mile run. Um, and it was kind of like a point system based on the time that you came in and the, the 
And I will tell you that that day somehow, some way was, I'm not a runner. I was going to say, I know you hate running. <laughs> I hate running. Yeah. So, uh, that was the fastest two miles I have done to date. So that was like my PR two mile time. And, uh, it was just under 16 minutes. So I did like a 1558, I think or something like that in two miles, which for me is, I know some people are like, oh, that's slow as shit. But for me, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So, and I still haven't done it that fast since. So, <laughs> what are you doing? Are you wearing um, gym stuff? Or was that yeah, actually- yeah, that was just a gym. So then immediately after that, I was like a shorts, t-shirt, running shoes. Um, immediately after that is uh, they did a minute. You had like a minute rest or something like that. And then you had to do many push-ups in a minute as you could, many sit-ups in a minute as you could. Um, you had to go through a the canine obstacle course, which are the, the jumps and stuff like that set up for the dog. So they're a little bit harder to, um, maneuver through as you a have person. To go through oh it. yeah. 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 Like the little the, tunnels. The, the yeah. Tunnel. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, um, but basically that's just solidify like, Hey, your dog's going to be going into some tight places. So we got to make sure that you, you're willing to follow them. Um, you, we took a couple bites, like in the bite suit from the dog to show that you're not afraid of the dog. Cause that's part of being a canine handler too on the team is you're going to have to let other people's dogs bite you for training. So you got to learn too. So, um, and then there was, um, a, an oral examination. Um, they asked questions related to, uh, like canine policy and stuff like that. And just regular, you know, policy to make sure that you can make good decisions and you know you know how the law works you know what you're supposed to be doing and then uh if you're selected they do like a home inspection make sure you got a a place for him where he's going to be safe and where they can put a kennel out and stuff like that um and then as far as the dog selection goes um most of the dogs that they're, they're using are imported from overseas um there's vendors in the united states who have contracts with vendors overseas who do like the breeding and stuff like that. Now, why are they just sorry to interrupt? Why are they imported? What what uh, makes them different over there? You know, this is like an actual huge topic right now in the uh, the canine community in the United States because so many of the good genetics have been wasted because a lot of um, agencies and stuff they have like within their policy that the dogs will not be bred. Hmm. Well, why the hell not? If he's a great street dog, he's got great genetics. He, you know, finds bad guys. He finds, you know, whatever it is else that you're looking for, whether it be, you know, drugs, explosives. Um, my dog now does guns. So he, you know, he's doing everything we ask. He's a perfectly healthy, genetically sound candidate to do the work. And we're just letting it go to waste because why? They, that, yeah, that's, the humans that do that, they get all the chicks. How yeah, come the right. Dogs I'm saying so. Um, they most of the time they're imported because, like I said, a lot of the agencies. Um, essentially, I'm assuming you know back in the in the earlier days, um, that's that's where the the prime specimens were coming from. You know what I mean? That the the German shepherds, really, um, a lot of the Belgian Malinois and stuff like that now. But you know that's where they were created. So um, I think that they just had the bigger pool of the good genetics there. Um, and then they were, you know, they're imported over here. Um, but I think, I mean, that's, uh, that's changing now. There are some, there's, there's quite a few kennels over here uh, in the United States now that are working on breeding programs to build up, but that's a problem too. So when agencies are looking, they're typically not looking for a puppy, right? They, they want them to be like at least a year old, um, maybe a little bit over. So, um, 
I think the struggle goes in where they're they're going from you're breeding. Now you've got, you know, eight to 12 puppies and now you've got to do something with them for the next year of their life. You know what I'm saying? Instead of just kind of throwing them off. So that's where a lot of them go. Um, they'll go get imported over here, um, maybe get like basic training. And uh, I mean, most of the dogs that I've been exposed to whenever we're testing have like, they don't have obedience, so they don't know like sit, stay. Um, they know this toy is really fun and we're going to hide it from you. So you need to hunt your ass off and find the toy, which is again, it's a genetic thing as well. Um, that's one of the things they're tested on is how long they're going to hunt. Right. So he might not find it right away. And, but if he's hunting, 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 and he's not going to stop hunting until he basically falls over dead, that's a great quality, right? He's going to keep looking. He's not going to be like, oh, well, I didn't find it and give up and go somewhere else. Um, Do shepherds have a good sense of smell generally? Because mine is, I love her to bits and she's a sweetheart, <laughs> but I'll throw a ball and if it gets in, in a clump of glass, grass, like right next to her, yeah. she'll have struggle even finding it. So it's, uh, I- I mean, all dogs, they're, obviously their smell is a lot better than ours. The, I just read a thing that was the uh, the part of the dog's brain that um, that processes odor mm-hmm. is like five times larger than the one in our brain. So they have it. Um, but again, her, she might just be like a hunt thing. Like she's like, uh, I, well, typically I can find this thing pretty easy with my eyes and they'll treat, they'll cheat. They'll try to use their eyes if they can, if they can see it, they'll go to it, mm-hmm. right? But learning and, you know, making that connection that your nose will lead you to what you're looking for. Um, and then hunting, 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 it's just a, that's a genetic thing. So yeah, generally, yeah. The, I mean, all of them, the dogs can smell. They can, don't let her fool you. She can smell it. She's just being lazy and not hunting for it like Probably. she should, right? So. Well, she's older now too. <laughs> she used to chase a bull like she was going to collapse, but... My yeah. shepherd's blind, and so she has to use her nose. So she's really good at it. So mm-hmm. <laughs> she'll find the ball. Yeah, I think she is a little bit because if it's like bright yellow, brand new tennis ball, she's good. When it dulls a yeah. little bit and starts getting close to the, For and sure. I'm colorblind too, so we're just fucking disasters together. <laughs> no, but. We'll never find this thing. Yeah, you guys are a horrible canine team, right? There's a number of tennis balls in the retention <laughs> pond that probably been eaten by the uh, the gardeners now. But um, so so yeah, so you were saying about them having that basic training when they come over here right so and it is it's it's really uh, when i say basic i mean it's it's basic it's like essentially you're not teaching the dog anything he doesn't already know right he knows how to use his nose if he was in the wild he would use it to hunt for food right um shelter safety that stuff that's what they use it for so you're showing him like hey this is this is how you get what you want this is how dogs are master manipulators um, so they're going to do anything in their power that they can. And they learn very quickly how to get what they want from you. Right. And a lot of people say that now too, like, oh, my dog does this because he loves me. No, he does it because you have something that he wants. And he's learned that when he does this, he gets what he wants. So he, in his mind, that's the best way to train a dog. If you make a dog think that he's manipulating you to get what he wants, oh, he's going to pick it up all day long. So You look at him and go, oh, you think you're yeah. winning. you just let him think that. Yeah, yeah. you're like, oh, yeah, you, you won, meaning? buddy. Great job. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. listen up, take notes. Um, so yeah, so it's it's really basic. Um, they do like some of the uh, bite work like on a sleeve or a suit um, just to get them comfortable. And they start that like at a young age too, kind of like chasing a rag or something like that. Just like, hey, this is fun. Do you like to do this? And some dogs don't. Um, my first dog actually that I had, my first working dog, 
Turned out he uh, was not a big fan of actually biting, so he ended up getting washed and going to be single purpose and just doing drugs. But mm. uh, doing drugs or detecting? I drugs? don't know if he was doing them. I hope he didn't turn to that. Like I said, we got to work on that hard. system. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just locating them. Apparently, hopefully, hopefully. So, but yeah, it's it's really basic. And then once they get what the handler, um, then they start the uh, the canine school. And in the state of Florida, it's a minimum mandatory four hundred and eighty hours of uh training before you can even attempt to certify so beautiful well you said about doing the the um the salt course yourself having to do it it just reminds me of there was a i think it was an english comedian but he said if you're ever running from a police dog don't go down a tunnel up a seesaw and over a wall they're trained for that (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) i've been doing that their whole life yeah (laughs) um all right then so were there any before we kind of push on with the story were there any kind of like funny stories or 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 big calls that you ran oh and then the story of the name the name of your dog oh yeah yeah, yeah. i think that's that's kind of cool too. yeah so uh so the name um was essentially the way most of it works is a donor uh gives money to the department to purchase the dog they're pretty expensive so um private donors give money they donate the dog and they get to pick the name so after I got my first dog, he didn't have a name for probably like a week or so. And uh, my supervisor had called me one day while I was at training in canine school. And she was like, all right, they have a name. And I'm like, okay, what is it? And she says, Bobo. And I'm like, Bobo? You know what I mean? Like, uh. Sounds like a clown. Right. It's like, <laughs> dude, this is, a, this is a police dog. He's going to be badass. He's going to be catch him back you know, all this stuff. And you know, you think of like really awesome names that could be named. And she's like, Bobo. So I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like. Does it have to be that? She's like, yep, that's what they picked. So I'm like, all right. So I'm like, well, I don't, she sends it to me. It's B-A-B-B-O. So I go and I look it up. And uh turns out that Babo is the Italian word for like dad or daddy. So just to solidify even more, you know, I got the dog or I got the position on my dad's birthday. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later after after having him, they come up with the name Babo. So people didn't know me. I didn't know them. And, you know, that was just something that was significant to their family. Um, and so, you know, it turned out to be significant to me, too. So I'm like, all right, I'll keep that. I like that name. So I thought that was pretty awesome as well. That is. So so with them. Um with your career with with him with again were there any either funny moments in training or in the calls or were there any kind of you know big calls that that he ended up being a huge asset in that moment so yeah i mean he could he was really really great at detection and essentially that's what the dog is he's a locating tool we're teaching him how to locate you know objects or people Right. Um, and he was really, really good at that. So I know one of the first deployments that I had, I was on a task force. I was the canine assigned to this little task force and there was like a bunch of shootings in the area and stuff like that. So um, I was out with the team one night and there ended up being some uh, car burglaries where some guys were breaking into cars and um, people had seen him. So I took him out, trying to do a track at the time. He was not very good at tracking, but we end up going like through this neighborhood and um, we're kind of on this little footpath that runs right alongside of uh, an elementary school and like in between the elementary school and like a dead end in the neighborhood. So as we're going down the trail, I see a couple figures, people up ahead of us, and uh, I call out to them. And when I do, boom, they take off running in all separate directions, right? So one runs down the road. I release the dog. He goes, he catches up with that guy. Um, and then the other two were like disappeared. Well, we heard like the clanging of the big... Um, chain link fence to the school so we thought that maybe they got into the school so we get into the school property and mind you it's an elementary school and we're in there and we're like 
looking through we got it like surrounded got a perimeter around it we're looking we don't find any people and uh we're literally about to like end the search and uh i'm sitting there and i'm talking with two of the other guys on my team and i feel the dog at the end of the leash and he's kind of pulling a little bit and then he just stops and uh normally he's looking for he's looking for something to do so he's like moving around sniffing he'll come up you know moving around but he stops and he's just like completely still and so i'm like come on come on come on i'm trying to get him to come and i turn and i look and he's laying down i'm like oh is he okay and so i end up hitting my flashlight and at this point we're pretty close to and he is underneath the like slide portion of the playground on this elementary school so i hit my light and i look and he's trained to find articles so like fresh human odor on an article the uh the you know the, the smell it's going to smell different because it's new to the area everything has uh, a smell that's been sitting there for a while and then they, they they're really good at finding the novel odor right it's like when you're walking your dog and you see him turn his head and he goes to like sniff something because he smelled it because it doesn't smell like everything else. Mm-hmm. So they're trained to do that article searches and stuff like that. So anyway, I hit my light and I look and he's sitting there and he's got his nose on a little revolver. The one of the kids had tossed when they ran from me. Wow. Literally on the playground of an elementary school. So Damn. I was, yeah, I was like super proud of that because you, you can't, I mean, what? What could have happened? What could have happened if it weren't for him? And we would have never known it was there. We didn't know they threw a gun. We heard, and turns out that's the noise we heard. We heard the gun hitting the playground equipment and falling. We so, thought it was like the fence because it was like a clang. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, so he found the gun in the in the playground. And I was like, you know what? This is pretty cool, right? So that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love hearing these stories. As you know, I had Mike Ritland on here. I had um, Will Chesney. His stories with Cairo, and they were on the um, mission to capture Osama bin Laden, um, you know, and how he saved a bunch of lives, you know, detecting explosives. And yeah, it's so cool to hear these stories because obviously dogs can't come on podcasts. So, yeah. you know, hearing the handler stories <laughs> is, is huge. Well, I wanted to transition now to the organizational stress element. Yep. When it comes to mental health, we've touched on some of it so far. Um, there are there are a few common denominators that come up over and over again. And when there's that perfect storm, they can send our men and women to some pretty dark places. Um, childhood trauma is obviously one, you know, what we see and have to do, you know, whether you see trauma, whether you have to take a life. Um, but another one is organizational stress. And that could be as little as being micromanaged by a tool bag that shouldn't be wearing bugles, or it can be a lot worse. And when we, again, in this world of extremism, you will see what you and I both know as firehouse pranks, you know, station pranks, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, beating on the, the probie and it's called hazing. Well, no, you know, it's all about intent. That kind of stuff, as I just talked to a guy yesterday, you know, when we laugh, we offload some of the trauma. It de- deregulates our nervous system. That, however, is separate from hazing, from hateful, um, you know, organizational stress, um, uh, harassment in the workplace, that's an entire area that should be discussed. And every person wearing a uniform should understand the difference and should advocate for people that are victims of that. So tell me about your journey from, you know, bright-eyed recruit to where you found yourself in the middle of that. So I think... um You know, a lot of women in law enforcement um, feel like, or in my case, um, they're accused of kind of having a chip on their shoulder. And uh, 
it is not easy to go in a profession like that. And I'm sure, you know, fire is similar. It's very male dominant. Um, where, you know, the job is very physical and it requires not only physical toughness, but a lot of emotional toughness. And so just stepping in as a female to start, um, the expectation is that you, you're going to be able to handle it. You know what I mean? You're going to be able to take it and be just like the dudes handle it. And, uh, and so it's not, it's not for everybody. It's not something, you know, male or female, um, with everything that you're required to do physically, mentally, emotionally, um, it, it's not easy. You know what I mean? So some people can do it and some people can't, um, regardless of your gender. And, I think that I I don't want to say I went about it the wrong way, but the way that it was perceived by my peers uh, was wrong. And I say that meaning um, I'm the first one that, you know, I'll cut up and I'll, I'll have a good time. And I use humor and laughter as a huge coping mechanism. I always have. Um, so... I, in my head, I knew I had goals and I knew what I wanted to do. And I knew that I would be able to do it with the mentality of, I just have to bust my ass. Um, when I tried out for the SWAT team for the first time, no one, no other woman had ever been able to pass even the tryout. Um, and it was something, you know, it was pull-ups, mostly got them. And if you look at it, and I laugh now, um, never, and I've been on two different SWAT teams, um, combination of like five years and I've never seen a moment in time where any SWAT member had to do anything that looked like a pull up. (laughs) You know what I mean? So in my head, in the back of my head, I'm thinking this is the pull ups are here for that reason. You know what I mean? Because they know that girls can't do it. So this is not part of the girls club. Like, okay, you can be a cop, but you can't do this. Because you just can't. You're just not capable of it. Um, So if me looking at that and saying, yeah, right, watch this, is having a chip on my shoulder, then so be it. Um, But to me, um, my level of self-confidence really took a toll on the way that I was treated by my peers. Um, and I got the, you know, she's cocky. Uh, she thinks she's better than everybody else. Um, which isn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily false. Um, because I knew my worth and I could look around at people and say, yeah, I'm, I'm physically, I'm better than them. You know what I mean? But I also had the mentality of, if someone is better than me at something, then I need to learn from them. I need to use them as a resource and get to their level and be as good as them. Um, so that, that hurt me. Um, and it, and it really didn't start to become like an emotional thing, um, until, you know, people, there's always a rumor mill. Uh, and it was coming back to me that, you know, people, and I say people, but th- these were like 
higher level like administration type people within my department who were saying things like, you know, they they thought it was ridiculous that, you know, why am I always posting, you know, pictures or videos like from my workouts? Like, you know, and yeah, I'm a CrossFitter. So sometimes I, you know, wear the wad jersey and it's, you know, just a sports bra or something like that. And, you know, it was put out there as I was doing that to like show off to people. Um, there were people who complained for the canine tryout that it wasn't fair because they only had two months to prepare for the tryout, but I was already physically ready, you know, and they knew that I was physically better than them. That wasn't fair. Um, and you know, I had people that I was on the SWAT team with men who was on the SWAT team with, who like took me aside to tell me, Hey, you know, when we're doing the banter, on the SWAT truck on the way to ops or something like that. And the guys are, you know, saying off color comments or, you know, making dirty jokes or whatever, or, or saying the F word, like it's okay for the guys to do it, but you shouldn't be talking like that because, you know, at the end of the day, you're still a female and that's not acceptable. So it was really, um, detrimental, I think to my, uh, mental wellness to feel like I busted my ass so hard to fit in and to be a part of the group, but was still looked at like, yeah, but you know, you're still not really one of us, um, which was, which was difficult to kind of try to navigate through. Um, and so I think what happened is that caused me to just try harder you know, to try harder to be part of the group, try harder to be more accepted and more like the guys and, you know, prove, just keep proving, proving, proving. And there's only so much of that you can do before you take a step back and grow up a little bit and look and go, well, what am I, what am I really proving here? You know what I mean? And for me, what I was proving, what I was actually proving and what I thought that I was proving were two totally different things in that I thought I was proving that you can trust me. Um, I'm just like you. I'm a member of the team. I'll take a bullet for you. I will do everything physically in my power to keep you safe and protect you just like you would for me. And you and I are at the same level. Like we're at the same level. That's what I thought I was proving. But what I ended up realizing was um, that I would do anything to get where I wanted to go. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of what it looked like from the outside in um, to the point where, uh, you know, I, I was, I was realizing that I was being treated certain ways by certain people that I worked with um, that if I saw somebody else being treated like that, I would be like, what the hell are you doing? Um, you know, comments like, Hey, uh, if you ever, you know, if you ever need a guy to come in with you and your girlfriend, you know, let me know I'm that guy. I can be that guy for you. You know, just men offering to basically have sex with my girlfriend or me, you know, if I was interested, um, you know, that would get tossed around with some of the other, like, joke stuff that was going around so it was kind of like the whole if you add lol at the end of the text then you know you can get away with saying whatever you want mm -hmm. um and you know it got to a point where i was like 
no, like this is not, this is not okay. This is not what my goal was. And I came to a realization that, and I and I know now it's wrong, but at one point I was, you know, thinking to myself, like, did I really get all this stuff based on merit because I'm a good cop? Um, I'm a strong person and I work hard and that's why I got it. Or did I get it because I let all these guys say whatever the fuck they want to me and just laugh it off like it's a joke? And then, you know, so am, am I just, am I the butt of their jokes or did I get this because I earned it? You know what I mean? Yeah. So with that environment, you know, and it's so wrong. I mean, the fact that you could be so arrogant that you think that a gay couple are sitting there going, you know what's missing? (laughs) Kind of like a a dad bod dude with a tiny penis to come join us. (laughs) All the time. All the time. So, but again, so, but that, you know, for people listening, they're like, yeah, well, that's uncomfortable. It's inappropriate. But I mean, obviously it, it went worse than that. And you started discovering that other women in the department had been, you know, Sure. Suffering in silence. So kind of tell me how that kind of came to a, a head, as it were. Yeah. So, I mean, I was actually, I witnessed um, uh, other women being <laughs> treated similar by uh, the same, you know, members of the department. And uh, like I said, you know, that was part of my realization, too. When I saw it happen to somebody else, I'm like. I can't fucking believe that he just said that to her. Like, I cannot believe he just said that. And um, when it came down to it, um, a couple other members of the department were having similar issues. And uh, then it was kind of time to spill it, if you will. Um, and it wasn't, it was, that was difficult in its own too. Because I knew that if I told the truth, which I did. Uh, and if I put that information out there and said, um, yeah, it's happened. Not only have I seen it happen to someone else, but it's happened to me. I knew that that was, that was the beginning of the end because in the community and in the agency specifically, uh, the, the, the phrase is commonly tossed around the good old boys. And I never dreamed of what the things that I found out during that. Um, I ended up getting an attorney and uh, filing a formal complaint um, against the department and uh, with the EEOC and going through that. And it was years. It was years that it took for finally a resolution, if you will, Um where I ended up, you know, leaving on my own accord because I was going to be fired. Um, and they made that very evident because uh, as soon as I told my story and was, I say, interrogated uh, by the lawyers representing the city. Um, when I was the one who made the complaint, by the way, I, I made the complaint, but then I was sat down and questioned as if I was the world's biggest piece of trash and, you know, treated like I was a criminal during the questioning about, you know, what I witnessed and what I experienced on my own. Um, and just the lengths that 
this organization went through to protect their people and to feel like I didn't get that. I didn't get that level of protection. So that tells me that, well, I'm not, I'm not valued to you. I'm not one of your people. Um, and kind of stepping out against that good old boy system, one of the good old boys in the good old boy system. Um, I mean, that's, it just, I knew, and my attorney told me like, like, this is, it's going to be, this is going to suck. Um, because now what they're going to do is they're just going to try to find every terrible thing that you've ever done and make you look like you're a horrible person because now you've exposed the truth on something that, you know, they're not going to be so easily able to sweep under the rug if they don't demonize you. Discredit you. Yeah. yeah. So, well, you talked about, um, the kind of pushback. If my memory serves me right, one of the most heartbreaking elements of that was your canine. Yeah. So four years old, dreaming of doing this, mm -hmm. you know, you've proven yourself on the streets. You joined, you know, the bike team, you joined the SWAT team, you're a canine officer. You basically are standing up not only for yourself, but for other people too. So tell me about that. So the, uh, the kind of like final straw, um, there was an incident where I was um, in violation of a policy, which was uh, basically the same level policy as if you came in and forgot your collar brass on your uniform. Um, so that, you know, obviously how quick of a fix is that? Run home and fix it, <laughs> which I did at the time when I was found to be in violation. Um, I made the mistake. I did it. Um, there were other circumstances that I, you know, with the whole story I can, you know, tell and, it, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. I did it. I was quote unquote out of uniform, um, for a very brief amount of time and it was immediately rectified or as fast as I could possibly rectify it. It was. So, uh, I was written up and, um, it was investigated and then I was found guilty of all these other offenses from, uh, um, what's the, uh, what, what do they call it? Insubordination. Yep. Insubordination. Um, basically fireable offenses is what I ended up being found guilty of, uh, after being charged with, I mean, it'd be like, you know, getting charged with stealing, uh, candy bar from the gas station and then getting to court and then they convict you of armed robbery and you're like wait mm -hmm. a minute you know um because that that discipline matrix the actual violation that you were self-admittedly guilty of would be a oral counseling a written reprimand something correct like, that. like it wasn't even like leveled on the on the discipline matrix but yeah they they basically found me guilty of things that they could fire me for for a first offense so obviously, you know, I saw the writings on the wall, started getting my stuff together um, to uh, plan for my future and work elsewhere because I knew it was going to happen. And I knew if, if they didn't get me on this, they would just find something else. And that was the, probably the most stressful time in my career was going to work those days and wondering what tiny little mistake I might make that could end my, my career. And, it's, and I say my career because, you know, in law enforcement, I'm sure it's fire as well. If you, 
if the next agency you go to wants your book, right, and they want to see any discipline or anything like that, well, they could write it up however they wanted to write it up. They can make a seem however they wanted to seem. And if I was written up and found guilty of insubordination, who who's going to hire me after that? You know what I mean? Like those are bad, but basically lying, saying I was lying. Um, you know, the all things that career ending, career ending, not just you know position ending, job ending. But um, luckily, I had um a couple lifelines. Um, when I appealed that guilty finding, um, when they were discussing my potential termination, um, there was at least three people on my little review board who were recommending termination. Um, and then I had two who were like, no, this is bullshit and, uh, really stood up for me. So I ended up being suspended for a significant amount of time. Now, mind you, Seven years prior to this, I'd been in trouble one other time and found guilty and gotten discipline. Um, so that was the only time in seven years that I'd ever been in trouble, really. And then this time. And it was that minor thing. So, but they were going to fire me over it. Um, so they suspend me. And then that Friday, um, before I was getting ready to go on shift with my dog as a canine handler, um, I had two supervisors show up at my house with a patrol car and basically they told me that I was being removed from the canine unit and they were there to get my dog and all my stuff from my house like two hours before I was supposed to go in and report for duty with your dog. Right. So, but now I was going to go and report for patrol they were going to take all my stuff and that was it. So, um, luckily they, I mean, everybody knew what was going on. Uh, it was, a uh, the best way my attorney explained it to me to kind of help with my sanity was self-preservation. And, you know, in that case, I kind of made myself the sacrificial lamb, me and the other uh, officers who stood up and said stuff. I mean, we were, we were definitely, you know, up there as the sacrificial lambs and everybody saw what was happening to us. So no shit, they didn't want (laughs) to stand up and, you know, take our side publicly. Um, There were a couple of people who reached out, in private. Um, but you know, they, they showed a little compassion to me there and you know, they were like, look, you, you don't have to come to work this weekend. You can just, you know, use sick time. Like we understand, you know, so every on top of everything else that I would have been required to do that weekend or, you know, God knows what it's like, I was obviously not in a good mental place emotionally and everything like that to, to go in. So, um, so yeah, that was, uh, really significant, you know, to, literally have it like just taken right in front of my face and it was a big show of force if you will by the powers that be to say like look what we can do you know what i mean look what, what, we can what was do. that like for you mentally as well because you have you know first you have your tribe which you're already kind of been taken or forced to step back from because the tribe you know wasn't acting the way a tribe should but then, as you mentioned, the handle of the canine are two, you know, the yin and the yang of that that yeah. being. And then we know how healing dogs can be. Mine's sitting <laughs> over there when she's not shitting on the carpet. Um, she's awesome. Um, but, uh, you know, now you've had that taken away from you. What what were those next few days like? Um, Very dark. And, uh, I mean, I had 
months. I mean, even like leading up to that, I was just, I was so stressed. Um, I really could not be myself, you know what I mean? And even at home, because I was just so like work forever, for such a long time, work was my happy place. Love my job, love doing what I was doing. I, I would itch to go to work. I would pick up overtime just so I could go work because I just loved what I was doing so much. And then to have that taken away, to have, um, you know, a department of 200 plus people and then really look and see only five or six others who, you know, were not even like, who couldn't even, you know, publicly stand up and say, hey, because then they would get the backlash too. Um, it was really, really dark for me. I was um, home and I'm a really social person. I like to be around people and be out and have a good time. Um, love going to the gym um, and, you know, getting my workout in, but also just having that community there. And I wasn't even doing that. Um, like I couldn't even, I couldn't enjoy or have any, I couldn't find any place that was, that could, anything that could replace that, that could replace the, the happiness at work and the, and the fulfillment that I could get from my job. There was, there was none of that. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm not a big, not a big drinker. Um, and I wasn't, it's not like I got lost in the sauce or anything like that at that point. Um, but I was definitely looking for ways to escape and just be like, when is this going to end? You know what I mean? When, when is this going to stop? Like, what is the next thing that's going to happen? Um, and to just continually be publicly shamed, um, by the media social media was ridiculous um anytime any kind of news would come out about uh, my suit or my situation uh just the comments that came in i mean I had, to, I had to stop i had to stop looking at it because the things that people were saying my own sister messaged me at one point and was like hey i just want to make sure like somebody's commenting on here saying that you know you use steroids and stuff like that and before i you know, put them in their place. Like you don't use steroids, right? You know, and like that, I've never used steroids. I have to lay down to get a tetanus shot. Okay, like I'm, <laughs> I can't. You're gonna be jabbing yourself. <laughs> yeah, in the dude, ass. I'm such a huge <laughs> pussy when it comes to needles. So, but to for it to get to that point, you know, where my own flesh and blood literally is like, hey, you know this is like was what people are saying. So I just want to make sure it's not true. Like, I don't think it's true, but I just want to make sure, you know what I mean? It was fucking heartbreaking for me because I'm like, if my own sister is questioning who I am and who she thinks I am, then what do I expect from the rest of the fucking world who barely knows me? Mm-hmm. And it's such a, you know, just backed into a corner. Cause I've had a lot of people on here now there are some amazing agencies out there. I always hold Anaheim on the pinnacle. Just loved, loved that department. I mean, my best friends 10 years later were my groomsmen. <laughs> you know what I mean? They flew two and a half thousand miles to come stand. Um, but I've had people on here that were shot on duty, that were, you know, 
all kinds of injuries, especially law enforcement, that were kind of abandoned by their agency, that, you know, were hurt in the line of duty. Um, and then obviously there's, you know, many, many uh, examples in the fire service too. So I think that, you know, it's an uncomfortable conversation. And there, of course, are people, which is why this conversation gets lost in the fray, that absolutely aren't victims of harassment that just cry wolf and get suits and get people in trouble that didn't really do anything because they were just doing, you know, firehouse joking versus, you know, crossing the fucking line. And we all know where that line is. You know, we all know who we're talking to. That's a big thing. Like you and the other day, we talked about this when we recorded the first time, we were doing my class and, you know, I forget, um, we had a, a fellow firefighter <laughs> using <laughs> using the sledgehammer on the tire and you said to him, I hope you don't fuck the way that you hit with a <laughs> sledgehammer. <laughs> we all know each other. We're all friends. There was no ill will. You know what I mean? Right. But that's different from harassment, whether it's racial, whether it's sexuality, whether it's, you know, opposite sex, whatever it is, sexual intentions. And so these men and women that have to stand up and say enough is enough in whatever shape or form that's happening, if they don't stand up, things aren't going to change. If we don't talk about drug prohibition being fucking reversed, things aren't going to change. If we don't talk about obesity, people are still going to die of the next fucking virus that sweeps through us. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's these are unpopular conversations. But the fact that you stood up is admirable. The fact that you lost your dog is fucking heartbreaking and obviously you know, what you went through. But you know, you, you stood up and that was, that was the point. And, and, you know, by doing this conversation, people are going to listen. They're going to realize they're in a similar situation where they are. And hopefully they can just go to the people. I know it was, it was a challenging thing for you because it was high ranking people that were in this group. But, you know, obviously the goal is that you be just follow the, the chain of command and someone stands up and fucking just fixes it and says, no, this shit doesn't happen in my department. But if that doesn't happen, you know, I absolutely, in my last place, it was a different form, but I was, you know, a victim of, and I see the, the victim's the wrong word, but I was subjected to a lot of organizational stress that was completely unacceptable. My whole drive was, we're not taking anything seriously. People are going to fucking die. We're not training. We've got no fitness standards, none of this stuff. And I was told to shut the fuck up all the way through the chain, you know, so I can relate in a different light. And, you know, my thing in the end in that one was to come outside the in the walls and put pressure on through this and try and raise the bar that way. What I love about the way this story un, um, unfolds though, is you did find another agency. And if you were a troublemaker, you wouldn't have worked again. <laughs> right, so right. let's kind of talk about the kind of the, the, the rising from the ashes of that whole incident. Yeah. So um, obviously, like I said, when I was seeing the writing on the wall and I knew essentially what their plan was, uh, I applied to another place, ended up getting hired there um, really quickly, knock on wood, um, started there, went through training there. And I kind of had the goal with that, um, you say like rising from the ashes, that's, I mean, words that I've used myself and, and really kind of a self-talk thing that I, you know, how to look myself in the mirror and be like, hey, you know what? That fucking sucked, um, but you owe it to yourself and to everybody else to show them that all the all the bullshit comments that people had social media you know whatever in private and public you know because i heard all kinds of crazy shit um but like 
Do it again. Do it again. Um, and do it somewhere else. And then see what they have to say. Um, and I was fucking... The level of anxiety I had when I went to my new agency, because it's not that far away from my old agency. And you know what I mean? It wouldn't take much for people to figure out where I came from and why I came from there. And again, unfortunately, the media was not kind to me. <laughs> so going to this That's new so agency. That's so weird that normally <laughs> such loving <laughs> yeah. groups of oh, people. Oh, I know, right? So uh, to to have that in the back of my head, like, you know, now, shit. I was accused of having a chip on my shoulder at the first agency when I didn't know anything and I was just a fucking squeaky new rookie to go here to have all the experience that I had um, to be, quote unquote, a decorated officer. I mean, in comparison to some. Uh, And then to have to overcome again, because people can read whatever the fuck they want to read. And if they choose to believe it, then, you know, and it was on me to show them and I was so scared and I as I as much as I hate to admit it because you know I'm tough and I don't you know I'm not gonna admit one but I was terrified to go to this new agency and have this fucking black cloud hanging over me uh because the way it was portrayed was you know I was just I was making shit up and you know I'm I'm the one I'm the cop now that every other cop has to be afraid of because I you know, don't say anything slightly, you know, don't make no jokes with her. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not who I am at all. I'm the first one to make the joke. You know what I'm saying? I'm the first one to cut up and have a good time. So I was so scared to go there and have to overcome that. And by the grace of God, I got to this agency with just some really, phenomenal phenomenal people um who didn't i didn't hear about it uh i didn't feel like you know when i walked into a room people were being quiet because they were just talking about me um like really a really clean slate and i don't know how i don't know why i don't know if people just were too busy with their own shit like you know what i mean where i i in my head it was so important to me but it really like nobody else really gave a shit like oh what okay just another new person here um but I am blessed and I was blessed to get the opportunity there because I, I really did get a clean slate and the stuff that happened to me at my prior agency was a non-issue. It was never a factor. And uh, I ended up, I was approached to try out for the SWAT team there uh, because they knew that I had SWAT experience other places. So I was like, okay, awesome. Got on that team. Great experience complete 180 from the other team um you you know as far as tactics and the way that they work the team to the way that I was treated on the team um I was the second female on their team up there uh at my new agency so um not to say that you know the first female had to go through the woes that I did but just to like it wasn't a thing you know what I mean it wasn't Mm -hmm. like oh there's never been a girl on here before I was like okay yeah it's a girl on our team she's an operator I was just an operator. You know what I mean? That's that's always what I was looking for. Um, Just to be, not to be the girl, not for it to be a big deal um, that I got on the team because I beat, you know, guys for the spot or whatever. No, just, I just want to be an operator, man. So, um, got to do that. And then, um, 
luckily a canine position opened up and put in for that and ended up getting a hold of that too. So in half the time, uh, I was able to accomplish everything that I had done at my previous agency. So that was a really big um, moment for me to just solidify that it was me. It was the hard work. You know what I mean? It was the dedication and the perseverance and the being me and being who I am and not folding to, you know, other people's bullshit and their expectations of what I should be, um, is what got me everything that I've gotten in my career. So, yeah. Well, I think that speaks volumes. The fact that you went back and ended up reestablishing every position that you had, you know, to me, underlines the fact that maybe you were right <laughs> you know, maybe you were a good police officer hey. maybe what was going on there was unacceptable at the yeah. time and i think something that i talk about a lot when we're wearing our gear especially if we're in a fire the only prejudice is a good firefighter or a shitty firefighter because you can tell with all our gear on this person doesn't know what the fuck they're doing this person is calm cool collected and handling their business there might be a man in there there might be a woman there might be gay there might be straight there might be muslim christian you know half man half goldfish whatever (laughs) whatever pigeonhole we want to talk about but it's about can you do the job and that's the way it should be in all agencies now i'm not saying that we should be carbon copies of each other either just like we talked about sometimes you need that female officer sometimes you need the you know, freaking linebacker, 300 pound dude, you know, whatever it is. But if we all understand that we're there to fill a position and execute our profession professionally, you know, and, and at the highest level we can skills wise and, and fitness and train, uh, strength and conditioning wise, that's it, you know, prejudice over. So this is such a ridiculous cancer in some of these departments that just has to be eradicated you put people through a crucible at the front door you will have a cohesive group of men and women that are proud to be there and be accepted by all the people that went through it in the past um but you know i've seen this you know if you if you have this kind of like good old boy system or no real standards and no real training then you end up with with all this bullshit going on because the reality is, if you're the kind of person that thinks that's acceptable, then that means that some of your energy isn't going to your training. It's going to be in a douchebag, and you probably shouldn't be wearing the badge in the first place. Well, and I think that speaks a lot to, you know, the administrations when you get to that point, like you said, with your agency, your last one, where, you know, you were pointing out um, insufficiencies and... And bringing solutions to them and saying, I will train not an expert but you know i will i will be part of the the solution right you know so that was the thing i think that that you know that is uh where people start to feel like you've recognized their shortcomings and now they have it in front of them and you know that makes some people uncomfortable um and i think that a lot of I don't know that a lot of, I know in my experience, I have dealt with administrations and, you know, um, higher ranking officials who can't tolerate that. They, if they are uncomfortable with something or they lack the knowledge or skill on something, um, then, you know, it's immediately the door is shut on that. And I think one of the biggest things like that, I I was thinking of this earlier 
when you were speaking about that is how they handled uh, Jared's death um, and and how officers were treated after the fact. Um, and I know it's I know it's tough. I know his death was the first line of duty death in like I don't know year like decades um, for the agency. And because it was a training accident and a friendly fire thing, um, they, the administration did not know and they did not have the skills or the resources to address it. And they didn't know how to handle it. And, um, you know, it got to the point where it became, they wanted to protect the other officer who was involved in the shooting um, and so they thought that the best way to do that was to silence, uh, everyone else who was grieving and, you know, to be, again, you talk about the tribe thing, to be part of a tribe for everyone in the tribe to be grieving. Right. And, you know, in, in my eyes, nobody was turning against the, the other officer who was involved. Um, but it was like that was their biggest fear. And instead of allowing us to be a tribe and grieve together and bring that person in to the grieving process and let us all grieve as a family, if, you know, that's such a bullshit thing. And, you know, some agencies always, oh, we're family, we're family. But when we lose one of our own and you literally tell us that we're not allowed to speak about it at work, like what a way to, you know, self-implode um and that was that was a huge eye-opener for me too like hold on this isn't right you know what I mean and I think a big part of the first responder community is that feeling I mean you're spending so much time with these people um and so to really feel like you matter right and you're important but then to see how someone is so easily forgotten or hidden from the public eye uh, after they're killed. (laughs) Um, You know, that was really heartbreaking. And I think that, you know, how you treat, how an administration and how an agency treats their people in a time like that is so telling, is so telling. And had I known then had the foresight of what was to come because Jared died before all that other stuff happened. Um, I, I look back now and I'm like, Oh, I should have known. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Well, you, you talked about Jared. So what we did last time, I want to make sure we do again. Tell me about the man. Tell me who he was in our community. Um, and then I think there's, there's, this happens. We have these gag orders. So then by the time those things are lifted up, the opportunity for people to learn has come and gone, which is why I did like the Pulse week that I did here. And I've actually got another one coming up with Parkland um, because this is what happens. They lock everyone down. They zip their, you know, their mouths closed, as it were, legally. Um, so, yeah, Jared Forsyth, who he was and his legacy. Yeah, so Jared, he was a little older than me, but he, uh, he started at the department after I did. And uh, I met him. At my own birthday party one night, uh, he was in training with another officer who stopped by. They were on duty, 
Um, they just stopped in to grab some food and say, what's up? Happy birthday. So I met him there and, uh, you know, I was already, I had a couple drinks. It was my birthday. So, you know, me, I like to give people a hard time. So I was giving them a hard time about something naturally. Um, and then a few days later, he sent me a friend request on Facebook and I'm like, Oh no. So the next time I saw him like at briefing or something like that, and he was with this training officer, I'm like, um, yo, rookie, like you invade my birthday and then like literally meet me there and say, Hey, and then you think that, you know, we can be friends on Facebook. Like, come on. And, uh, Jared was just such a like genuinely nice person like you literally could not help but like the guy like just super always smiling always like good mood happy guy hilarious um like a jolly guy he's a big guy too but uh just just had that about him that persona like he was he was a fun guy um so anyway I ended up after I did accept the friend request um I caved and uh I found out that he was actually from uh same area as me buffalo so he had you know family up there and stuff like that so we connected over that and then uh friendship just kind of grew from there um hung out a lot off duty um and uh i think at one point we were both single so we were having a good time uh hanging out together and um yeah just just a really um genuine guy just like somebody that Again, it's just so magnetic that you can't help but be friends with. Like, I didn't meet anybody who didn't like the guy. Um, and it's funny, we we made jokes um, after he passed, not about him, but about the fact that all of a sudden he had all these best friends and all these women who were in love with him. Like, they just came out of the woodwork. We're like, where the hell were you people? <laughs> 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 so, uh, but just that guy, like, literally could have such an impact on people. And, you know, for just a brief amount of time that he met him, that literally after he died, there was just so many people that were like, oh man, Jared was like my best friend. And I'm like, really? Cause I hung out with him a hell of a lot and I never saw you, but just, he made people feel like that, you know? Um, so really, really good guy. So, so tell me about the, the training accent. Cause I think again, it's important, not only in law enforcement, but so many people in the States own weapons and it's just, and it's such a, a, a lapse of concentration can result in a death. Yep. So it was, um, an accidental discharge at the uh, gun range uh, training day and uh, during weapons breakdown uh, another officer was taking apart his firearm uh, which required the uh, trigger to be depressed before the slide would come off after taking the slide unlock so um, apparently there was still a round um, I'm not 100% sure if there was a magazine in the gun or if there was just a round in the gun but um yeah, the weapon was discharged when the trigger was squeezed. Um, bullet ricocheted off of a cleaning table top and ended up hitting Jared kind of like in a, in his armpit and then went into his chest and, uh, severed his aorta. And, uh, they ended up taking him to the hospital, do, trying to get him into emergency surgery at the trauma unit. But, um, obviously that's a very significant injury that, Basically, the way that was explained is uh, if, you know, that if he would have been shot in the same manner uh, on the operating table, that they wouldn't have been able to save him. So, yeah. And he was wearing a vest too, wasn't it? So it went in the gap of his vest as well. Yep. I remember they live streamed the funeral and his dad 
gave a you know gave a talk and you know his family seemed so strong you know i mean they they were incredible but i forget how he framed it basically said if you know if jared was inside a bank inside a safe that bullet still would have found him because i think it ricocheted a couple times didn't it before it hit him yeah i'm not uh maybe either way i mean you know like you said it 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 wasn't direct and then it hit between the jacket but i mean i i saw that i did i never i want to say maybe i'd seen him before like Mm -hmm. in passing in town but um i was struck by the overall grief of the city for that young man um so that speaks of who he was but um yeah i mean it's important that we do talk about everyone that we lose you know and that if there are any lessons learned that we don't sweep it under the carpet and i'm not saying that they did but this does happen you know we have to be able to storytell and be like hey someone died because this happened you know i the, the guy yesterday lawrence um gonzalez who wrote a book deep survival he was telling me an anecdote of just recently he was taking off his shirt and he ended up smacking his hand on the ceiling fan in the hotel where he was at and he's like every time i go to take my shirt off now you know i have that that response well that's how it should be when we lose someone you know a near miss or an actual loss we should be telling each other these stories over and over and over again so that when we're in the range when before you're about to take the slide off your glock you remember jared forsyth and you make sure you've cleared it first you know what i mean you know what's uh what's something that i realized after uh he was killed is and i don't know if this happens in every every instance where a law enforcement officer is killed i hope it does um but you know my sister i told you earlier my sister oldest sister lives in scotland and you know he was in a a news article that came up on one of her feeds you know overseas and uh so the the ripple you know like how far his name reached um was uh I mean, I don't know anybody else who is worthy of that. You know, personally, I don't know anybody else who's worthy um, for the, for that for their name to be, you know, all over the world, literally. And um, we, a couple of friends of mine, um, the year after Jared died, we went to um, a retreat that is uh, funded, set up by uh, cops, which is Concerns of Police Survivors. And they do a retreat at like a... Uh, a camp it's almost like a ymca camp sort of out in uh, missouri out in the mountains of missouri and it's put on for um they do different like segments but this particular one was is for co-workers survivor co-workers who've lost a friend uh and co-worker in the line of duty and uh there's you know officers from all over the country and uh different you know different times like that they that they lost a, a co-worker a friend and there was a guy there who was like, oh, you guys are here for Jared. And we're like, yeah. And he said, uh, he, I can't remember if he pulled up a picture, if we had one. I think he pulled it up and he showed us the, uh, his memorial card that was given out at his funeral. And uh, he pulled it up and he said, you, do you know that I have his picture in my range house? Because after that happened, um, he, after that happened, he thought it was so important for, you know, the officers that he was teaching and he was training to see like this happens. Like this is why we do what we do. He said, it's right next to my range safety rules, his picture. And uh, 
that like I mean I was just in awe you know what I mean and it, it had just happened but he was like oh I know Jared you know what I mean I know Jared because I have his picture I see him every day in my range house when I'm training and uh again just to just the significance of that and uh knowing him and knowing that you know he if anybody was worthy of that if anybody should be known and should be plastered you know all over people's training facilities it's him so yeah well i think that's exactly what needs to happen we need to remember there's um placards that we have here in florida that say r and f and that comes from two orange county firefighters that we lost and now it's a reminder to people going in that structure that either the roof or the floor is lightweight construction. So people should know that legacy. So the fact that he, you know, his, his story is potentially saving lives around the world now is, is beautiful. And that's why we need to have these conversations. One more area I want to get to just briefly, partly because we've actually seen it with our own eyes, but I just posted an amazing video today of an LAPD SWAT guy. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but they were making, I don't know what, what kind of, uh, call it was initially, but, um, they were firing tear gas into a house and you're watching the body cam of the guy, the, the operator that fired the tear gas. He's just reloading his gas and then switching to his rifle and his partner gets shot through the window and you see him go down. So then he does radio traffic. One hand, he drags his partner to safety. Then he ends up engaging the, you know, the assailant. Um, then they end up like restraining the assailant, cuffing him. And this is like a 30 second segment. All this stuff happens, but it's such a beautiful example of when you have trained, when you have got your fitness and your strength to where it needs to be, your repetitions under stress where they need to be. I mean, this man did like three or four different functions immediately. We've talked about, you know, kind of strength conditioning in in the testing processes, but I kind of revamped my tactical class, tactical strength and conditioning at the gym. And one of the things that I struggle to understand. I just saw a program up in Virginia got closed down. Um, I think with Jeff Nichols of SEAL was helping with that, but it was a retired law enforcement officer. And he basically was like, look, no one's, no one's coming. We have to close down the program. How do we get local responders into the gym? The one I offer is free, as you know. And ironically, the day you taught when I was uh, in Utah, <laughs> a bunch of freaking people showed up. So maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm an asshole. Um, but no, but it's, it's, I, I fail to understand when our circle all gets it, why there's still that disconnect. When you can come and, you know, work out with local responders and be trained by, you know, pretty legit coaches. I mean, we're not like well known, but as far as certs and experience, you know, we're up there. Um, how do we change that? How do we get these men and women into jujitsu schools, into gyms? I wish I knew the answer. I mean, that is a great question. Um, and I mean, I've joked with you before. I think uh, for me, the only thing that's worked is bullying. <laughs> Just uh, I-, I really think that it takes um, those oh shit moments, those those calls where you go, I, you know, I wasn't ready for that. Um, and I don't know how to 
preach that. I mean, you can show all the videos. There was just a, I think I sent you the video of uh, the canine handler here locally who was wrestling with the guy over the gun um, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. It was five minutes, five minutes. He was by himself well, with his dog and they're fighting a guy over a gun. And I don't know many uh, officers who would be able to do that. So the uh the the notion that there is a need for that I think it takes you know actually being in those situations for people to realize that that's something that they need that they need to work on or you know unfortunately failing but that's not really an option either because if you're in that situation and you fail, it could mean your life or someone else's life. So how do you preach that and tell people like, hey, you have to be ready to do this and I can give you some of the tools to be ready to do this um, with the, like, how, how do they believe you? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, even on, on that video, there are people commenting, oh, I, I would have just shot him or I would have done this or I would have done that. And it's like, well, yeah, because you would not have had the wherewithal mentally uh, or the confidence physically to do what that officer did. Mm-hmm. And what he did wasn't wrong. Could he have shot and killed that guy? Absolutely. But in his mind, he didn't have to. Or it came to a point where he couldn't because by him going and reaching for his gun, he would have had to take his hands off the bad guy's gun. And what does that mean in yeah. that split second? You know what I mean? So um, I don't I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Um, I mean, we've talked before. A lot of uh, places are protected, unfortunately, by their unions to not have the exceptional physical fitness standard, to not you know have a, a minimum requirement that isn't a fucking joke. Um, because there's officers who want to be grandfathered in and okay, I get that, but you don't know what day's your day. It could be your last day before retirement. Mm-hmm. You don't know what day that's going to be. So why the hell would you not want to be a hundred percent prepared as best as you can be? Yeah. You know, and like you said earlier, training under stress, I think that is a huge reason why I do the type of training that I do. And I, I like the CrossFit programs because everybody talks about the pain cave and there's no way to simulate that when your heart rate is up that high and you are stressed, there's no way to simulate that. But the closest thing you can do is get to that point where you feel like I got to quit and then push just as uh, proof, I think, in your mind to say, hey, I felt like this before. I know I know I've got a little left in the tank. Yeah, I know I can go a little further. Um and I think that in itself is a is a is a huge tool that is underutilized and not trained and practiced with enough. Yeah. Well, just to, to reverse it completely for a moment, as a guy who doesn't struggle with his weight but struggles with his strength, I'm you know very slim built. I can't imagine how much worse I would be if I didn't work out. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah. So just to put, yeah. you know, think of it in a completely different way for all the, the fitter people out there. Imagine if you just didn't work out. Right. Imagine how shit you'd be. Yeah. So if you were one of those people that doesn't, imagine how much better at whatever it is that you do at the moment you would be. And we have this in the fire service. Oh, well, you know, I can still do it like the young guys. Yeah. 
you can. There's a lot more efficiency of some of these older people that you know aren't like huge, huge. But imagine how much better you would be. Yeah. Imagine instead of you being winded at five floors, imagine you'd actually be able to get to that twentieth floor and get that kid. Now, you know what I mean? I don't understand why that's such a hard sell. Yes, our shifts, our environment set us up for failure, no question. And we have to be the voice for that as much as all the other topics that we talked about today. But if you can't comprehend that you need to be fit, you need to be strong, you need to not just train in the cooler days between the hours of 3 and 5 p.m., but you should train late at night, you should train in the rain, you should train not in lightning with metal ladders, but, you know, (laughs) add those elements of stress, those elements of realism, and test yourself and fail, yeah. The fight, the training ground is there for you to fail, to look stupid. I've looked stupid so many times. I can tell you a laundry list of failures I've had on the draw ground. But the goal is when the shit hits the fan, hopefully that's the time when everything comes together and I perform it well because I've done it 20 times, started off really bad and worked my way to getting competent. Yeah. You know, that's funny. I've had um, – I'm I'm – middle-aged now if you will for uh for police officer and you know the fact that i'm a girl but i like to uh i have to laugh because a lot of the young guys that come in you know the young men and they're you know full of testosterone and just uh, their their natural genetic muscle build that they have at that age without really working hard and uh i always crack up whenever you know they chase somebody and they get away you know when it's when it's piddly stuff and somebody runs from outruns them and uh I, I've been asked, you know, because I, I've been in my fair share of foot chases and trust me, the first handful of them, I lost and I lost bad, but it was a learning experience. And I learned that, you know, just like you get that adrenaline dump chasing somebody, the person who's running from you has one as well. And, you know, through, we know through science or through practice or however we learned it, that those don't last long. Right. And when your adrenaline goes, it kind of gives you a little bit of super boost, but physiologically, your muscles uh, are going to react the same as if you did that same amount of work without the adrenaline boost, right? And even so, a little harder where you get that crash because at the time you weren't feeling that, you know, that smelling salt power of, you know, lift where those muscles are tearing or what have you. Um, so I learned that if I could just keep the person who's running for me in sight and I didn't run as fast as I could to try to close that gap within like the first hundred yards right because we're not chasing people for miles it's you know 200 300 meters max if they you know till they get out of sight or you know hunker down and hide somewhere and then we go from there but for the most part if you can keep them keep your eyes on them there's going to be a moment or they're going to start getting those jelly legs because they just sprinted the hardest they could sprint for their freedom, right? I mean, whatever's going through their head, we don't know what they're trying to hide, but they are running. And uh, I learned that watching them and keeping a distance, like not trying to close that gap and waiting until they lose that adrenaline, <laughs> they lose all that momentum they had, and they're just completely out of gas. And then they're literally just jogging up to them and you know grabbing a hold of them mm-hmm. um they don't all always go like that right but for the most part that's how i've been successful is but learning i didn't know that and nobody really told me but i kept getting dusted dude like people would run i'm like dang it, i can't catch anybody i'm slow i'm not a runner anyway my sprint speed's decent for me and i do practice that 
um but to to realize and have be able to have a clear mind while doing that while doing the physical stuff and being able to think being able to talk on the radio give a description say which way i'm going say what my charges are tell people where i need them to go to help me telling them that there's someone else in the car and i need them to go to the car you know what i mean like just doing all those things and being able to use your brain and cognitively think instead of just full-on tunnel vision you know chase the rabbit (laughs) and then lose them because you let the adrenaline you let the physiological things in your body take over you know your brain power so that's the thing that i try and how do you teach that though too yeah i try to tell you know i've I've told the young guys before like listen you're gonna want to run right out the gate you're gonna want to sprint because you're gonna think i can catch them i can catch them i'm fast but that's not gonna that's not gonna be successful for you so try it this way you know what i mean and i've literally told a guy that and then like an hour later somebody ran from him and, and you know what I mean? I told him and then he's like, oh, you're right. Like, you know, you have that clarity after the fact, but that's how you learn. And so I don't know. I don't know if it's things like that where it's like that would be the guy where you hand out a business card and say, hey, I know you lost this foot chase. Let me, uh, <laughs> See me know? on Monday. It's yeah, right. Five o'clock. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, another area that I just kind of, you know, had a aha moment. And I'll, I'll credit to one of the firefighters around here, Frank, who came and did a strongman class. I mean, I, I incorporate strongman in my class, but it's not a strongman class. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually competes and just ridiculously strong. But he had the sandbags that we used. And i never forget there was a, the 200. Um, I hadn't been able to get off the ground. And so I was like, oh, you know, I'd, put a, I'd get people to help me get on a box. I could carry it if it went from waist level to waist level. And through his class, we basically incrementally loading got to the point where we realized uh yeah you can you're just not believing in yourself and this morning we did the the sandbags and there's a 250 which i bought deliberately pink just to you know emasculate all the guys (laughs) that couldn't um pick it up but you know i it's to the point now where i was using that today i can pick that up and carry that and the 200 i couldn't pick up before i can carry 200 meters now and that's at 47 years old you know what i mean so that's the other thing is in the gym you start pushing out the the walls of what you're capable of whether it's jujitsu where you know if you get your first ever grappling fight and you're fighting for your life well do you want you know that to have been the first one ever or you've rolled with a bunch of black belts for years and you know exactly how to get out of whatever that person's putting you in you know so that's the other part i don't understand is the strength and conditioning, you want to be the best at what you can do. But then you also, as you said, you want to be constantly in an uncomfortable, stressful place so that whatever happens in the street, just like the MMA fighters talk about, your worst days were in the gym. Yep. The street isn't that bad. The cage isn't that bad. So I don't know. I, I just don't understand how people talk the talk, but it's getting <laughs> people to actually show up again. Yeah. I get it. Last year was kind of shitty and it took the wind out of a lot of people's sails, but there's no you only have today so start today and for people that are local across the iron legion monday afternoons 5 p.m there's a free one hour class for people training to be responders active responders or retiree responders military any of those corrections any of those professions where you use your body to save lives you're more than welcome so now that's your sign show the fuck up <laughs> All right. Well, then let's transition to some closing questions. We've been chatting well over two hours. Uh, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? Yes. 
Beneath a Ruthless Sun. And it is by Gilbert King. Uh, this is a story from the early 60s, um, locally in the central Florida area, just a few miles down the road from us, um, that happened um, in like an Orange Grove community where um, was still right in the midst of the civil rights movement um, where, you know, just prior to uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, making his way to St. Augustine. Um, so some really significant points in history right around this story. Um, uh, but it is basically about, uh, racial injustice and, um, um, discrimination against, uh, disabled, um, where there was this sheriff who was just doing some really, gnarly stuff uh to his community and within his community and here we go again with the uh, good old boy system and just the level of protection and stuff that he had doing the terrible things that he was doing um it's essentially uh a frame job where they're framing one person who didn't commit this crime and then you know trying to work at that angle and essentially brush it under the rug um and then you know I don't want to give away too much of the books it's a really it is kind of a mind blowing story. And what is the craziest part to me is that it's all true. <laughs> so, um, to see just the links that people in law enforcement, uh, were going even back then, uh, to protect some of the dumbest things that you like when you, you know, read the book, you read the story and you find out like the actual reason why it'll, it'll just blow your mind. So really good book. Really? Um, and I think I talked a little bit last time about, you know, I, I like, I think it's important to study all the shortcomings and the mistakes that we make and have made in law enforcement in the profession, um, because what better way to see someone else fuck it up really bad <laughs> and then go, oh, yeah, I'm not going to do that. So um, I, I, I'm really intrigued by stories and stuff like that of that of that nature, because I think that it's a huge learning experience. And it's, if anything, you know, a handbook on what not to do. So, yeah, well, I think humility is so important because what i I mean, i'm like i said 47 when i was growing up the way people were taught to eat the way people were taught to exercise is so wrong compared to what we understand now now was there malice behind that movement no it was sadly you know obviously the the kind of sales side got into supplements and, you know, exercise machines and all this kind of thing. And we kind of got away from just normal human movement. But just going, you know, looking behind you and going, all right, we did some things really well, but there's some things that we didn't do well. It's okay to say I was wrong. You know, we were kind of misled, whatever it was. And then just say, all right, we're going to change things. Right. You know, it's not, people have such an issue with that, like, you know, with, with this COVID thing. Yeah. Why is it when we know damn well that the numbers are way lower than we were terrified of? Why am I not hearing that conversation like, hey, it wasn't as bad as we thought. And our incredible medical personnel figured out how to treat it. And our, de- our numbers, our death numbers have gone to the floor now. That's a beautiful success. Let's kind of, you know, de escalate some of these things because, you know, 
it's good news. Instead, it's like, no, hang on to that, you know, lock everything down. Oh, there's a new strain now. Admit you were wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, it's so just having the humility to say, not even that you were wrong. Things have changed. We found a better way. We're going to try this instead. So brilliant. All right. Well, then what about um, a movie? Movie. Um, I'm a documentaries person. Um, I think uh, I'm watching currently watching things called Trial Four on Netflix right now, um, and it is a wrongful conviction case. <laughs> um, again, I just I I love watching those because I am not too proud to say that the industry, if you will, um, or the system that I am a part of, the justice system, is flawed. And there is a shit ton of room for improvement in it. Um, and I think that just that reminds me, you know, when you look at these cases where someone is put on trial, this guy's put on trial multiple times for a crime that he absolutely did not do. And um, it it's really cringy to me when you see that uh, that type of police work and whenever it's very obvious that there's some kind of personal motive behind it um and again it just it to me it's like we can we can do better right and you you know if you think about someone you love um, or yourself in that situation um you it really kind of spins it around to go like all right let me make sure i think this might be the guy but let me i like to do a thing where if I'm not sure with uh with something with a case or a charge, I like to try to prove myself wrong. You know, and if there's a way for me to prove myself wrong, then I don't have it. You know what I mean? But if every avenue I go down where I'm trying to prove myself wrong, I can't, then I feel confident in that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that is a a good way to work it. That's just me personally. Um, but there's just so much so many flawed pieces of the system that the last thing we need is for shitty police work to be, you know, for them to be able to point the finger of blame at that because we got enough stuff to worry about. We don't need to, we don't need to do it to ourselves. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> don't need to, don't need to pile on anymore with that. So, no. And I think that's just, you know, it's an important thing. I mean, as I've said on here numerous, numerous times, I mean, most of your profession are full of great men and women. But the Khalif Browder story and the Rich Jewell story and the Central Part 5, these are lessons learned, the same as we talked with Jared. If we ignore those, if we sweep under the, the rug, all these potential, you know, um, cases that may have ended up being, you know, finding the right person, the same thing happens. History repeats itself. So I love that this is okay. I, mean, I don't want it to be like demonizing law enforcement, but these are individual anomalies where there was a perfect storm of all the wrong things that resulted sometimes in in the person you know dying on death row or taking their own life because they what been th- what they've been through or you know just uh, so yeah absolutely i think those those documentaries are are fantastic the ones that are done well all right well then next question is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world Yes. So my recommendation is, uh, Doc Slish. And, uh, he is a emergency doctor, but he worked his way up from, uh, starting out as like a EMT. 
um, worked up to a medic, uh, and then ended up putting himself through the police academy and specializing in uh, like tactical medicine. And he is not only, you know, currently a medical doctor, does like trauma stuff like that, um, but also an active law enforcement certification. He holds that, um, does lots of work with local SWAT teams, um, not just as their uh, their physician, but as an actual operator on the SWAT team. So um, I can't imagine the the stories and the experiences that he would be able to share, but um, just having the guy is just a wealth of knowledge. So I would, I would, I think he would be great for the uh, audience just to hear what he has to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I'd love to get him on. So we have to make that work. All right. Well then um, the last question before we make sure people know how to reach out to you, what do you do to decompress? Um, well, thankfully it's starting to warm up now. So, um, I like to be on the water. I like to paddleboard. Um, I've got a fun little jet ski that I like to take out and go fast. Um, do a little bit of wake surfing here and there. Um, I, uh, I got a whole mess of dogs at the house that I, you know, I'm constantly taking out, running around with them and playing. So, um, and then I'm, I find that a big part of my decompression is going to the gym, getting, uh, getting some of that energy out physically. And then that helps me relax and everything else. So brilliant. All right. Well, then if people want to reach out to you, obviously we're just putting your first name out there. I mean, a lot of my law enforcement guests don't want their entire you yeah. know, demographic or, uh, you know, information out there. Um, so what's the best place for people to, to kind of find you or reach out if they want to? So I've got a, an Instagram that is available. Um, it is alpha spelled out underscore female underscore AF. And um, it's a little side project that a friend of mine and I put together a couple of years ago um, just to kind of be an ally, um, a support system basically free advice, uh, consultations, as far as any women who are in male dominated, uh, professions and, you know, are trying to work their way up or are, you know, having their own struggle, whether it be, you know, physically with like exercise stuff, um, food stuff, or just, you know, professional advice on how to make this work, how to, you know, get through this situation. Um, we're open for, you know, we'll, we'll answer your messages. You send us a, a message, we'll answer it. Um, obviously guys are welcome as well too. Um, but, uh, that was just kind of angled a little bit toward the women. Um, but if there's guys out there who are struggling and, you know, need some kind of professional help, my friend who was, uh, who is, uh, co partner in that with me was, uh, in the military, she's in the army. And, uh, she ran a unit. I think she ended up retiring at the level of captain in the army. So, um, she's got her own experiences that she can, you know, relate to and advise on. And, uh, I have mine as well. So, um, just something that a way to reach out because there's sometimes you feel like there's not a good resource. Like I know for me, when I was coming up, I didn't feel like I had, I had like one female officer that I like really looked up to and, you know, strive to be like, but as far as, you know, if she wasn't at work or, you know, she didn't, 
she didn't try out for the SWAT team. She didn't have those experiences and just things like that where when you get into the specialty units of the specialty professions, you know what I mean? It can kind of get a little bit, uh, a little bit tricky. So I wanted to provide a platform for people to be able to get information and get help or, you know, just talk. So brilliant. Well, thank you. So what I want to say, thank you again, obviously, second time, I think we managed to hit all the areas, but I think we <laughs> I think went so. to some different new interesting places. Yeah. I think last time my dog Nini, she was not going to live the microphone. She replicated that perfectly. Yeah. She added some screaming at the neighbor's dog and some weird kind of like almost vomiting noises in the background. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but it's been, it's been great. Thank you so much. I mean, your, your, personal professional story obviously some of the challenges that you met telling um jared's story there's been so much so thank you for giving me the chance to do this again and coming on the, the podcast absolutely thank you for having me